And uh, many scholars believe that uh, Psalm 23 was actually written toward the conclusion of David's life and um, uh, in his later years. But we're actually going to conclude his life with David's final prayer this morning. David's final prayer. And I believe that this is a wonderful, uh, fitting message for our theme, uh, Teach Us to Pray. And so we're going to learn some lessons about prayer this morning as we study this particular uh, passage. Um, when we look here in First Chronicles chapter 29 in just a moment, David is concluding his reign, and uh, we have here recorded in First Chronicles chapters 28 and 29 the final words of David. Now, last week I challenged you uh, with the thought concerning uh, the way that we sum up a person's life, perhaps at their funeral, but the greatest summary is perhaps what is on their mind and their last hours and their last days when they draw their final breath, their own final words. Jesus, uh, David's final words here um, are delivered to three separate groups of people. It's really one group, but he addresses three segments of that group. He calls together all the elders of Israel, all the leaders in Israel. And first, he challenges them concerning the building of the temple, and then also following the new leadership that God is setting up in David's stead, as David's son Solomon is now going to uh, rise to power and to the throne. David uh, commends the men to follow Solomon and commends them toward the plans that were received regarding the temple. And then the second uh, person that he addresses among that group is Solomon himself. And uh, we actually spent time looking specifically at uh, David's words to Solomon on last week. Uh, he told Solomon, Solomon, I want you to know God, and I want you to serve him, but I want you to seek him. And he warned Solomon about the importance and challenged him about the importance of seeking the Lord with a whole heart and a willing, ready mind, and not just serving the Lord outwardly, not just having a head knowledge about God, but really desiring to know God from his heart. And finally, uh, where we're going to be looking this morning, David uh, addresses the Lord, whom we must remember is also present, whatever audience it may be that we're addressing. David was mindful of the fact that God was there. And he prays a prayer, which was a prayer of dedication of the gifts which were given uh, for the temple. A five-year-old little girl was a attending a formal wedding service one day. And although she had grown up going to church, she usually went to Sunday school and junior church like many of our children and had not really sat through a formal service before. And as she was sitting in that service, the, uh, the officiant of the wedding ceremony, the pastor, said, let us go to the Lord in prayer. And silently, everyone around the room bowed their heads. The little girl was a little surprised by what was going on in the room. She looked around, and then she leaned over to her grandmother and said, what's everybody looking for? <laughs> Seemed to her that they were all searching for something across the floor. Maybe somebody had dropped something. Maybe somebody was looking for something. But what is it that we're looking for when we pray? Sure, our physical eyes may be turned toward the ground as we bow our heads and close our eyes as is typically customary for many of us as we pray. And though you might find many postures of prayer throughout the scriptures, those who stood with God, those who walked with God, those who sat as they prayed, there are many postures that we find in the word of God. But every posture that we find in the word of God has with it this intention that we seek the Lord with our spiritual eyes. 
David, in the midst of this great speech, which he is giving to the nation of Israel, he commends the leaders of Israel to follow after the plans which God had given for the building of the temple and to follow after the leader that God had given to them. And all of these words, he's directing the hearts of those men toward their God and directing Solomon toward God. And so it's only fitting that in a life which had the intention to direct others toward God, that he would then turn his speech toward the Lord. And so he concluded with prayer. At the conclusion of David's life, although David was perhaps one of the greatest monarchs to ever reign in the history of the world, it was not David's great military might. It was not the vast expanse of David's kingdom, for Israel was never an empire in the same sense of uh, the Grecian Empire under Alexander the Great or the Roman Empire under their various Caesars and rulers. Uh, Israel never expanded its borders that far. It was not the vastness of the territory over which he reigned. And actually, as far as wealth goes, Solomon would have been a greater king than David in that there was great wealth amassed during the rule and reign of Solomon. What was David's greatness? David's greatness, he realized, was not found in himself. And David perhaps didn't even see himself as great. But he was a man after God's own heart. In 1715, King Louis XIV of France died after a reign of 72 years, and he called himself Louis the Great and was the monarch who made the famous statement, I am the state, or in French, le tête c'est moi. His court was the most magnificent in Europe, and his funeral was equally spectacular. As his body lay in state in a great coffin, Orders were given that the cathedral should then be very dimly lit with only a very special candle above the head of the coffin to dramatize the greatness of the deceased monarch. At the memorial, thousands of people waited in hushed silence, and then Bishop Massillon began to speak. As he mounted the platform that day, he slowly reached down, snuffed out that candle, and said, only God is great. As we think about these concluding moments of David's life, I really feel that David is pointing people to Jesus, pointing people to God himself, pointing their spiritual eyes upward. And David is declaring in his final words, only God is great. I want you to see this final prayer of David as he speaks to us concerning the greatness of God. First Chronicles chapter 29, verses 10 through 19. Wherefore David blessed the Lord before all the congregation. And David said, blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel, our father forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come of thee, and thou reignest over all, and in thy hand is power and might, and in thy hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. Now, therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? For all things come of thee, and of thine own have we given thee. For we are strangers before thee, and sojourners as were all our fathers. Our days on the earth are as a shadow and there is none abiding. O Lord our God, 
All this store that we have prepared to build thee in house for thine holy name cometh of thine hand and is all thine own. I know also, my God, that thou triest the heart and hast pleasure in uprightness. As for me and the uprightness of mine heart, I have willingly offered all these things. And now have I seen with joy thy people, which are present here to offer willingly unto thee. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the imagination of the hearts of the heart of thy people, the thoughts of the heart of thy people, and prepare their heart unto thee. And give unto Solomon, my son, a perfect heart to keep thy commandments, thy testimonies, and thy statutes, and to do all these things to build the palace for the which I have made provision. I want you to see some uh, aspects of David's prayer to God this morning. The first aspect that we'll look at is this, that it was a prayer of praise. It was a prayer of praise. I don't know about you, but as I read that prayer, I realized that David had a close and intimate relationship with God, that he knew God so well, that he was able to describe God with such amazing, incredible language. This is perhaps one of the most beautiful prayers in all the scriptures. I remember uh, hearing the story about a young boy who was in church one Sunday, and he was drawing furiously uh, during the message, coloring and just going to town. And his uh, mother noticed the veracity with which her son was uh, scribbling all over the notepad that she had given to him. She tried to pay attention to the message, but all the activity got her a little distracted, so she leaned over and said, What are you drawing? She said. He looked up with a great smile on his face I'm drawing a picture of God. Well, the mother said, no one's ever seen God. The little boy looked up at his mom with a proud look on his face and a sparkle in his eye and said, they will when I'm finished. <laughs> I don't know that I could quite paint a picture of God for you this morning that would be as accurate a representation of all the vastness and immensity that exists in all that he really is. I hear sometimes people try to do that, and usually it comes up sounding really shallow. But David came pretty close, didn't he? I mean, these are some pretty incredible words. I want you to look with me again at verses 10 through 13. Wherefore, David blessed the Lord before all the congregation. And David said, Blessed be thou, O Lord God of Israel, forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come of thee, and thou reignest over all. And in thine hand is power and might, and in thine hand it is to make great and to give strength and all. Now, therefore, O God, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. It was, in fact, a prayer of praise. David certainly did choose beautiful words to speak of God, and he spoke of God with a great degree of familiarity and who God really was, because he had spent time with God, and he had spent time thinking about God. A.W. Tozer aptly uh, said, uh, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I would say that most of us fall very short in our words to describe God. One songwriter 
wrote concerning his struggle to uh, describe all that the Lord is and all that the Lord means to him. He said this, he promised us that he'd be a counselor, a mighty God, and a prince of peace. He promised us that he would be a father and that he would love us with a love that would not cease. Well, I tried him and I found his promises are true, that every, he's everything that he said that he would be. But the finest words I know cannot begin to tell just what Jesus really means to me. I stand amazed when I think that the king of glory would love, uh, come to dwell within a heart of man. And I marvel just to know he really loves me when I think of all he is and what I am. For he's more wonderful than my mind can conceive. He's more wonderful than my heart can believe. He goes beyond my highest hopes and fondest dreams. He's everything that my soul ever longed for. Everything he promised and so much more. He's more than amazing. He's more than marvelous. He's more than miraculous could ever be. He's more than wonderful. That's what Jesus really means to me. He is beyond our comprehension. He is beyond our description. But when we think about this part of David's prayer and all of the things that he described God to be, what does that mean to us? What are we to do with all of this information? Well, I believe that it, it challenges us to first practice the praise of God in our lives to practice the praise of God in our lives. I really think that too often when we think about our prayers or the opportunity to pray, that we rush right past this element and go straight to supplication. And David will make supplication a little later, later in his prayer. But I remember Scott Pauley said in a message about prayer once that we don't first of all rush into the presence of a holy God and when we get there, we don't rush out. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, as I told you about earlier in the service, and as we talked about for our theme verse this year, that the disciples came to him and they said, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples to pray. And then Jesus gave what we sometimes call the Lord's Prayer, but it's really a model prayer. And Jesus used that as a tool of instruction to help them to understand, to include those elements in their prayer. And the very first thing that he said was this, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Those first phrases are really an opportunity for us to take a moment to identify who it is that we're really speaking to. When we use the words, our father, we think about the position of a father within a home. That there is uh, that presence that commands respect, but also an intimate relationship that exists. And though you may not have necessarily had a father who, uh, who held that uh, ideal a role within your home, all of us know what it should be, and it's exemplified by our Heavenly Father who exists in His perfect form. But the next thing that He says is this, is hallowed be thy name. The word hallowed means to be consecrated, to be holy. And as much as we recognize that when we are adopted, we're given the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, which would be our modern equivalent of Daddy, Father, uh, that he, God is both our father and he is our dad. That his name is hallowed, it is consecrated, it is holy. I think that while there, the positive side perhaps of some of modern Christianity has been a recognition of the intimacy of the relationship that we have with our God, the byproduct of that that I find to be pretty disturbing is that he is treated as some homie or some thug 
I just went to a service the other day where, I mean, the words to the songs just seem like a bunch of emotional gobbledygook. And I know that I'm excessively critical of, you know, whatever, but that's just the way I see it. I, I have a master's degree in Bible exposition. I don't know what they're singing about. And the Bible says that we teach and admonish one another with our psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So we should be teaching through our music. And that song, that stuff's not very instructional, to be honest. Check your brain at the door, you know. Uh, just, you know, feel. And that's just very soulish to me. I think if you had proper theology, you would be feeling something. And when, you, when I read the words of, of David concerning who God really is, his majesty swells up in my breast. I just cannot describe it. When we sing the song, How Great Thou Art, and I think about all that God really is, that's incredible. It should make you feel something. Now, unfortunately for us, we've been singing so many of these songs so long that they become rote memory to us and they lose the uh, affectations that they should have. Um, but um, but I, I want you to know that, that God is not just some slovenly a person. And uh, while they were singing those songs, the person who was leading the music had their cap on the whole time and during prayer and everything, a ball cap the whole time. And uh, I'm not, I, I really have to wrestle with that stuff in my own heart because I know I'm kind of old fashioned, but I sort of feel like that's a violation of 1 Corinthians, to be honest. And, and I just don't understand why there's no reverence for God in many of these churches. Do you see him as the high exalted one of Israel who's also your friend? I'm all for singing what a friend we have in Jesus. But he's not your homeboy. He's your heavenly father and hallowed is his name. And I think what we learn to do is that when we praise God, we praise him accurately for who he is. To give God the glory is to accurately represent him. I believe that so many people today uh, have a great affection for a God they really don't know very well. It's a God they've made up in their mind, but it's not the one of the Bible. And we ought to see him for who he really is. David could do that because he had spent a lot of time with God. He was a man after God's own heart. When I was a boy, and I don't know if your kids do this to you or you ever did this to your parents, but sometimes I would get a little casual in the way I'd talk to my mom and my dad. And uh, when I would be towing the line on that, then my mom or my dad would say something to me. And I have to accurately represent this because my mom watches every service, okay? <laughs> so somebody in the comments section can ask her if this is true, but she would say this. Did you forget who you're talking to? She would say that. And I think children need to be reminded uh, who they're talking to. I mean, God made you older than your kids so that you deserve some respect in the home. And it's not, it is not prideful for you to expect respect uh, in, in when you have a position of authority. And all of a sudden then, the yes sir, no sir, yes ma'am, no ma'am would return to my voice. I would remember who I was talking to. And here's what I want you to consider for a moment. David remembered who he was talking to. We need to practice the praise of God in our prayers. Pause and remember who he is. Do you know who you're talking to? I fully believe that he's our dearest friend, that he is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. But I fully believe that while he is our dad, he is our father. 
and hallowed is his name. We learn to practice the praise of God, but also we need to learn to practice the presence of God. As I've mentioned several times throughout this point, the fact is that David had spent time with God and therefore could describe him accurately. He knew God in an intimate way and therefore could ultimately lead the nation of Israel and point them to a true God, the one uh, who God really was. We need to remember that God is present. He is the omnipresent God of the universe and we must learn to practice his presence in our lives. I think this is a problem with the Corinthian believers as Paul addressed them. They were very casual about their sinful lifestyles as they uh, took the culture from without and brought it into their church. And Paul said, what? Know ye not that you're the temple of the Holy Ghost which you have of his and you're not your own, you're bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your bodies? What he's saying is that the Holy Spirit's present with you while you're doing all this stuff. I think you'd be, do well in your life to be mindful of the presence of God. While David was standing up and addressing the crowd, Saul perhaps would have focused only on the people who were present and would have, uh, been, would have had a heart that was swell with pride, swollen with pride because of all the people who were in front of him. But David remembered that the most important person in that audience was the one who was not seen. Do you practice the presence of God in your life? When Scottish theologian John Bailey taught in Edinburgh University, he made it a practice to open his course on the doctrine of God with these words, we must remember in discussing God that we cannot talk about him without him hearing every word we say. We may be able to talk about others behind their backs, but God is everywhere. Yes, even in this classroom. And therefore, in all our discussion, we must be aware of his infinite presence and talk about him as if it were before his very face. I think that's wise. I remember... Uh, a, a country preacher that I heard as I was growing up who talked about uh, riding down the road in his car and, uh, and just praising the Lord as he went down the road. And he said, the presence of God got so real in that car that day as I was just praising God and magnifying him that when I got to my destination, I shut off the engine, I got out of my side and I went around to the other side to let God out of the car with me. How real is the presence of God to you in your life? I believe it was very real to David. And that's why it seemed that in this moment, it was just natural for him to spontaneously begin speaking to God in the presence of all these people. It was a prayer of praise, but it was also a prayer of thanksgiving. A prayer of thanksgiving. Look with me, if you would, at First Chronicles chapter 29, verses 14 through 17. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? For all things come of thee, and of thine own have we given thee. For we are strangers before thee and sojourners as, we, uh, as were all our fathers. Our days on the earth are as a shadow and there is none abiding. O Lord, our God, all this store that we have prepared to build thee in house for thine holy name cometh of thine hand and is all thine own. I know also, my God, that thou triest the heart and hast pleasure in uprightness. As for me, in the uprightness of mine heart, I have willingly offered all these things. And now have I seen with joy thy people, which are present here to offer willingly unto thee. In this particular prayer, it is a prayer of the dedication of the gifts which were given for the building of the temple. And the interesting thing about this is that it is with gratitude that they give. 
And this portion of the prayer is both about giving and it's also about thanks. And so it is thanksgiving. It is with thanks that they gave. Those who have learned to give sacrificially to the Lord understand what it is to have a heart of gratitude when you exercise generosity. Our Lord rightly said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Why is it that these people could be so grateful when they're giving away their wealth, giving away their riches, giving away of their own money and of their own possessions? How could they be thankful in such a time as that? Many of you are not. When it comes time to write that tithe check, you either just don't do it, first of all, uh, or it's real hard for you to do it. And you're going to make sure you only do it down to the very cent. Not going to round up for Jesus, <laughs> you know. Uh, you might round up for St. Jude's Hospital over at CVS or whatever it is. I don't know what they're given to over there. But uh, you're going to make sure that you keep every cent that's rightfully yours. Like the Pharisees who tithed of mint and anise and cumin, right? The very minor uh, small herbs and spices. But these people gave with generosity in their hearts and with joy. Why was it? Well, several times in these verses that we read just a moment ago, he points out to the Lord, he's, as he's speaking to the Lord, that all of these things came from you, he says. For riches come of thee, he says in verse number 12. That if you and I have anything, then we first recognize that God is the giver of all things. James chapter 1, verse number 17. For every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 3, verse number 27. I'm sorry, John said it this way. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Do you realize that everything that you have in your life was given to you by the Father? Everything, not just the portion of it that you give back to him on Sunday morning, but all of it. And a true stewardship principle is not, uh, is not about what you give. It's also about what you keep because all of it belongs to the Lord. And stewardship is an understanding that God has entrusted certain things to your care. And so when God asks us for something, we realize that it was only his to begin with. I think about Abraham and his son Isaac, that God had promised Abraham that he would give him a promised son, and from that son would be a great seed that would be multiplied innumerable across the face of the earth. God promised that he would give Abraham a land, a seed, and a blessing. And, and, uh, and so Abraham spent his whole life wandering to a land, and he spent his whole life hoping for a seed. And I believe he also spent his whole life receiving from God a blessing. But that blessing ultimately would come down through his uh, posterity and much of the blessing that God was promised, uh, promising would not be received until the Lord Jesus came. And even to this day, uh, uh, Abrahamic covenant will find its ultimate fulfillment in the second return of Christ. But although God had promised Abraham a seed, they waited and waited and waited. And then God finally gave him the promised son, Isaac, through his wife, Sarah. That was the son of, son of promise. Uh, Ishmael was a son of compromise, but Isaac was the son of promise. But God called out to Abraham and said, Abraham, give me your son. And Abraham climbed Mount Moriah and intended to offer his son Isaac because God asked for it. To Abraham, that just made sense. And Hebrews tells us that he supposed that God would bring 
Isaac back to life. But actually, God spared Isaac and gave him a ram for a sacrifice instead. And from that, we have the wonderful, beautiful picture of our God who spared not his own son, but gave, offered him up for us. And we're thankful for Abraham's obedience, but we learned this wonderful life lesson that whatever you give to God, you can trust him with. Abraham knew that God had promised Isaac to him and that if God asked for Isaac, then Abraham could give God Isaac and trust him with what would come on the other side of it. And so these people knew that they could trust God with their gifts too. Whatever it was that God asked of them, whatever it was that he demanded, out of a willing heart they gave. Why? Because all things come of thee. All of these things, all of the wealth, all of the riches that God, uh, that they could offer came first from the Lord. And therefore, they could willingly give them back to the Lord if he asked for them. And therefore, also, they could give willingly. In those verses a moment ago, uh, we read in verse number 17, he says, I know also, my God, that thou triest the heart and hast pleasure of uprightness. As for me and the uprightness of mine heart, I have willingly offered these things. So David speaks of himself and says, I have offered my offering willingly. I gave willingly of the riches that you have given to me to build this house for you. But then also look at the next part of that verse. He says this, and now have I seen with joy thy people, which are present here, to offer willingly unto thee. These people, when they realized that God had given everything, uh, given them everything, they gave some of it back to them, just a portion of what God had prospered them with. And they could do so first willingly, but then also with joy, with joy. In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote this and said that God loveth a cheerful giver, a cheerful giver. The interesting thing about that word cheerful is that it is the uh, Greek word from which we get our modern English word hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. It carries with it the idea of laughter. I know when I said that word, it put a smile on your face. But does putting something in the offering plate put a smile on your face? God says that it should. God says that it should. Sometimes people will say, uh, God loves a cheerful giver, giver, but he'll take it from a grouch, amen, ha, 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 you know? But I say this, though. What you can't give willingly and cheerfully, just keep because God neither needs it nor wants it. Just keep it. If you can't, if you can't serve and if you can't give with a good heart attitude, then just sit down and keep it. Sit down and keep it. Because God holds us responsible for both our actions and our attitudes. And God wants our attitude to be right when we do things for him. These people gave with joy in their hearts. Could you imagine as people went out the back door and dropped their offering, play, uh, offering the offering plate that they were just so giddy with laughter as they gave? Maybe you should give a little bit more and maybe you feel that way. <laughs> But you know, the fact of the matter is that God loves a cheerful giver and David and these folk exercised that in their hearts. And therefore, when they gave to God, they thanked him for the privilege and the opportunity to do it because they had learned blessed, that word blessed means happy. Blessed, it's more blessed to give than to receive. It's more happy to give than to receive. Why is that true? Why is it more blessed to give than to receive? 
Well, I can't fully describe all that it is as you uh, watch your own children open their Christmas presents on Sunday morning. And, uh, I mean, on Christmas morning. Uh, it was Sunday this year. Uh, but on Christmas morning. And uh, they open those gifts before you. And uh, you're more excited about what you gave them than what you might receive that particular year. You just can't describe that joy. But it is more blessed to give. It is more happy to give than to receive. But I also think that the, one of the major reasons for that for many of us is that there may have been some times in your life where you were not able to give as generously as maybe you are now. And it really is a blessed thing to actually have it to give, isn't it? It is more blessed to give than to receive. And therefore, they thanked the Lord. Lockyer wrote this. The golden verse in this magnificent chapter with its beautiful prayer and freewill offerings for the temple is the ninth where we read of the people offering themselves and their gifts willingly. What a spontaneous outburst of joy and thanksgiving there was on the part of this people. There's little freedom in prayer unless offered to God out of a generous heart. With, the, uh, with these offerings of the willing heart, there naturally flows the surrender of the offerer himself. Verse number 18 says, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers keep this forever in the imagination of their hearts and thoughts of the uh, heart of the people and prepare their heart unto thee. Both gifts and giver must be placed on the altar. And David is an illustration of that wonderful truth that God loveth a cheerful giver. It was first a prayer of praise that David paused and recognized God for who he really is. Let us learn to practice praise in our prayers and let us learn to practice praise in our hearts and in our lives with a reverence for the God that we come to, the God that we speak to in our prayers. Let us learn to practice the presence of God, recognizing that it is a personal relationship with him, that he is God with us and that we learn to live in his presence. And then let us learn to practice thanksgiving in our lives, that as we give freely of our lives and from our lives and from the blessings that God has given to us, that we do so willingly and with joy. And finally this, it is a prayer of intercession, a prayer of intercession. First Chronicles chapter 29, verse number 18, the Bible says, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the imagination of the people, uh, of the thoughts of the heart of thy people and prepare their heart unto thee. And give unto Solomon, my son, a perfect heart to keep thy commandments, thy testimonies, and thy statutes, and to do all these things, and to build the palace for the which I have made provision. In these verses, David is offering up intercession. Intercessory prayer is when we pray for one another. Quite simply, intercessory prayer is the act of prayer on behalf of others. There's very little in our lives that we have control over. Uh, we, um, our hearts are deceitful above all things desperately wicked. It's challenging for us to even bring our own hearts and thoughts into subjection. And we have the most control over those things. We have very little control over our circumstances. We carry around with us the false idea that we're in charge or that we're in control. And every once in a while, there are some things that take place in our lives and maybe even on a daily basis that disrupt that false sense of control. And it's in those moments that we find ourselves most stressed and most anxious and most worried. It can happen on almost a daily basis. And sometimes uh, there are greater events that take place in our lives that disrupt our sense of control for extended periods of time. We don't have control over our own lives. 
The Bible tells us uh, that we're not even promised tomorrow. So much of our lives is really outside of our own control. But what are you going to do about that? You going to worry? Someone said that worry is like a rocking chair. We go back and forth all day long and get nowhere. Worry is a conversation that you have with yourself where you talk to yourself about things that you cannot change. But intercession and prayer and supplication are the conversations that we have with God about the things that he alone can change. Right here in David's life, he's praying about something that is definitely going to be outside of his control. During his rule and reign, there were lots of disruptions. There were lots of things that were outside of his control. But just think that the things he's praying about at this moment are things that are going to extend beyond his lifetime. What is he going to do? Sit around and wring his hands all day long and worry about what kind of king Solomon is going to be? Is he going to worry if these people are going to take the plans that God has given to him to build this house for God, this temple where God would dwell? Is he going to worry that the people are going to execute those plans? Is he going to worry that the nation of Israel would continue to follow after God? He has no control of those things. In the next few verses, David is going to go to sleep on this side and wake up on the other side. What's he going to do about that? David wisely knew that much of his very own life was outside of his control, much less the successive generations that would follow. And therefore, in this prayer, he commits those things to the Lord's hands because everything is under his control. Jesus came walking on the water when the storms were above the heads of the disciples. The waves were mounting high and and the disciples feared that it would sink the boat. These were skilled fishermen but they could not control the winds and the waves. And in those moments, they feared that they could not even control the ship. And therefore, they were fearful and in a panic. But here Jesus came when the storm was over their heads. The waves were under his feet. Walking on the tempestuous waves of the sea. I can't walk on water when the waters are still and calm, and neither can you. But our Lord can walk on them when they're stormy because all things are subject to his control. It makes no sense then for us to wring our hands. It makes no sense then for us to have anxiety. It makes no sense then for us to stress and worry about all things. But it makes perfect sense for us to receive the peace that God has to offer to us. And the way that we receive that is prayer. Philippians chapter four, verses six through seven say this, be careful for nothing. That means don't be full of care. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known unto God. And here's a wonderful promise that we can claim. When we learn to commit such things to God in prayer, the Bible says, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Do you want to have access to the peace of God in your life? In the midst of a time that is very turbulent and things seem to be changing all around us and there's more talk about mental health than there's ever been in the history of the world. People are out of their minds, worried and stressed and overstimulated. But to you and me, we can have a peace that passeth all understanding. A peace that the world can't give to you and it's accessible to us through prayer. David did not worry on his deathbed. He committed it all to the Lord. And then he went to sleep and woke up in the Lord's presence. Someone wrote a song that I learned as a little child in our little country church in Virginia. 
an old hymn that says this, I was weak and weary and I had gone astray. Walking in the darkness, I could not find my way. But then a light came shining to lead me from despair. All my sins forgiven and I was free from care. How do you get that? The chorus said this, I found the answer. I learned to pray. With faith to guide me, I found the way. The sun is shining for me each day. I found the answer. I learned to pray. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I'd like to ask that you would stand together. And perhaps in this moment, there's some things 